a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. If this is your first time around, first of all, I congratulate you on having the courage to tune in. Right? No, it takes it takes guts to challenge the status quo, or at least to challenge the narrative. What I hope you find as you listen to this program is thoughtful, informative commentary and interviews for people who delight in thinking for themselves. And if that's you, hopefully you feel right at home. I uh, do this uh, Monday through Friday, a couple of hours each day. And uh, I, I kind of look at uh, my job as not so much setting myself up as, uh, you know, to be uh, uh, rich and famous. In fact, I have a very, very carefully executed plan to avoid fame and fortune. And so far, it's working really, really well. Um, no, I'm here to distribute uh, precision-guided truth bombs while disarming dangerous myths and encouraging you to be more certain of who you are and what you stand for than simply, you know, absolutely certain of who or what you're against. It's a subtle difference, but it's one that hopefully helps us see the world more clearly and helps us to recognize those places where we can step up in our circle of influence and make the difference we were born to make. Lofty ideals, right? I'll pull up a chair and let's let's dive right in. I do want to mention I have a number of great sponsors. I would love for you to check them out for yourself. And whether you, if you need their product or their service, by all means, I would ask you, please avail yourself of, of their services and, and let them know that their message reached you. Even if you don't at this moment, maybe send them a little bit of love as far as, uh, you know, an email or just drop a message saying, I heard Brian talking about you. Great to hear that you're sponsoring his program. You can find them in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. So I want to start with a quote from Theodore Dalrymple. Now, that's not somebody everybody's quoting around the dinner table, but I thought this was a really interesting note to begin on. The quote says, In my study of communist societies, I came to the conclusion that the purpose of communist propaganda was not to persuade or convince, not to inform, but to humiliate. And therefore, the less it corresponded to reality, the better. When people are forced to remain silent, when they are being told the most obvious lies, or even worse, when they are forced to repeat the lies themselves, they lose once and for all their sense of probity. To assent to obvious lies is, in some small way, to become evil oneself. One standing to resist anything is thus eroded and even destroyed. A society of emasculated liars is easy to control. I think if you examine political correctness, it has the same effect and is intended to. End quote. Wow. <laughs> Does that not sound like what well, we've been uh, force-fed here for a while? Especially political correctness. You cannot think this. You may not look at that. You may not name this, that. or I mean, just everything that came before was wrong. It all has to be undone. It all has to be reordered. And yes, you must look to me, the social justice warrior, now elevated to the status of general, <laughs> to, to tell you what it's safe to think. That sounds a lot like weaponized guilt. That sounds a lot like manipulation, and it's unfortunately something that has permeated most of the institutions in our society. 
By the way, if you want to see the institutions that haven't been uh, thoroughly uh, brought to, to their knees by political correctness, by cultural Marxism, all you have to do is look at the ones that are most under attack. Let's see, that would be the family. To some degree, churches, although there are a lot of churches that have, um, they've, they've knuckled under. They actually are going the politically correct route. Won't get much into that, but uh, gosh, what else does that leave? Not much. Other institutions like media, academia, business, what else? Government, yes, <laughs> that's that's a big one, um, and I guess community could could you know arguably be one of those that's under attack right now as well. Bottom line is, we've got to do a lot of uh, we got to put in some serious effort if we're going to think through and not just follow along with the herd, and uh, if we're if we're going to actually you know own our worldview. So I thought I would start today with what's on a lot of people's minds, and that, of course, is the Omicron variant. Oh, my goodness. The memo went out over the weekend, and um, it's sad to see. You know, I, I, My daughter lives in Germany, and my wife got word from her yesterday. Well, we had to, we had to go and you know see the Christmas market while we can because it looks like uh, Germany's getting ready to lock everything down, just like Austria has and like other places throughout Europe have. Scary, scary stuff. Not because of the virus, though. I, and, and this is, uh, I feel like I'm walking this fine line here between, you know, the, the COVID virus is real. I think most of us know someone who's either died from it or has been severely sickened by it. But it's not the death threat to the majority of the population that we're sometimes expected to believe that it is or expected to behave as if it is. I mean, this is this is the reason why, you know, no matter how many mask mandates, no matter how strict the lockdowns, things still keep spreading. The virus keeps doing what viruses do and what we've recognized for 100 years. Viruses do. But it seems like everything that didn't work, well, we just need to do it harder. We need to try more. And and where does that kind of thinking come from? Well, I'll give you a clue. It, it comes from people in government positions like Dr. Anthony Fauci who believe their own press releases. I want to play a little audio clip for you here. This is from an interview with Face the Nation. I picked this one up off Twitter. And, you know, this, this reporter is asking Dr. Fauci, you know, well, what about these, uh, what about senators like Rand Paul or Ted Cruz who called for you to step down or maybe even be prosecuted? Fauci did lie, by the way. It's very clear he lied when he was testifying before the Senate um, not so long ago about gain-of-function research at the Wuhan labs. But listen to his response and tell me that, uh, hey, we're in good hands. Here's what he had to say. Why do you feel so strongly about that, about staying on the job when you become, I mean, you were personally, not just rhetorically, threatened your security, your safety, your family. Yeah. H- how did you deal with that? I dealt with it by focusing on what my job is. From the time that I went into medicine to the right now where I am at my age, my job has been totally focused on doing what I can with the talents and the influence I have to make scientific advances to protect the health of the American public. So anybody who spends lies and threatens and all that theater that goes on 
with some of the investigations and the congressional committees and the Rand Pauls and all that other nonsense. That's noise, Margaret. That's noise. I know what my job is. Senator Cruz told the attorney general you should be prosecuted. Yeah. (laughs) I have to laugh at that. (laughs) I should be prosecuted. What happened on January 6th, Senator? (laughs) Do you think that this is about making you a scapegoat to deflect from President Trump? Of course. You have to be asleep not to figure that one out. Well, there are a lot of Republican senators uh, taking aim at this. I mean, That's okay. I'm just going to do my job. And I'm going to be saving lives, and they're going to be lying. It seems another layer of danger to play politics around matters of life and death. Right, exactly. Exactly. And to me, that's, that's unbelievably bad, because all I want to do is save people's lives. I mean, anybody who's looking at this carefully realizes that there's a distinct anti-science flavor to this. So if they get up and criticize science, nobody's going to know what they're talking about. But if they get up and really aim their bullets at Tony Fauci, well, people could recognize there's a person there. So it's easy to criticize. But they're really criticizing science because I represent science. That's dangerous. To me, that's more dangerous than the slings and the arrows that get thrown at me. And if you damage science... You are doing something very detrimental to society long after I leave. Wow. I represent science. I am the Senate. (laughs) The emperor proclaims as uh, he gets ready to take over in Star Wars. I mean, come on. Science is a decentralized, self-regulating process for legitimizing belief. But it consists of observations, hypotheses, experimentation, open-ended public adjudication, and nothing is ever settled, except that a general consensus may form around a most likely answer. I am the science, and when they when they are attacking the science, they are attacking me, they're attacking the science. Now, the sad thing is there are people who are, you know, hanging on every one of Dr. Fauci's words. Oh, yes, he's just, he's just trying to save lives. Really? And, and by controlling your life, he's, he's saving your life? When we come back, we'll talk about how the government's currently turning up the pressure in a last-ditch effort to salvage the COVID narrative, which is crumbling. Stick around. You're not going to want to miss this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. One of my great sponsors. You can find a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. And look, the the necessity of stocking up on food storage and uh, preparedness supplies, it's as strong today as it ever was. Uh, Maybe some people feel a little stronger pulled than they've felt in the past. Well, I want you to consider doing this through lifesavingfood.com. And one of the reasons is, yes, they are a sponsor. It uh, it benefits them when my audience responds and and uh, does business with them. But let me show let me tell you about a way that they're going to show some love to you, and that is a twenty five percent discount if you use the coupon code Hyde H Y D E at checkout. 
Try to make it as simple as possible. That 25% discount, that's steep. That's a that's a very substantial savings, better than you would get if you went to ReadyWise Foods themselves. So please take advantage of it. Again, there's a link in the show notes at thebryanhideshow.com. I would encourage you to take a look. Decide if, if you need to bolster your existing food storage program or maybe get started on one. All right, having said that, let's talk about what is happening <clears throat> in the effort to salvage the crumbling COVID-19 narrative. I don't know about you, but as I've looked around, I have uh, had this sense that, hey, for the most part, the world is looking fairly normal. You still encounter masks out in public, not a lot, but you see people who, who consider themselves to be vulnerable wearing masks, and that's fine. That is, you know, I don't see any need to stand there and ridicule them or tell them you're wrong. But the government is cranking up the pressure. And I think we have reached the point that where, where a lot of people, and I'm talking, I'm, I'm not necessarily talking, you know, the tinfoil hat crowd here, but um, just average people recognize that if, if I'm going to hang on to any semblance of my autonomy, my liberty, I'm going to have to learn to be civilly disobedient. And that's a scary prospect. If you've never done civil disobedience before, wow, people might think badly. They might call me names. They, they, they might accuse me of having bad motives. Welcome to the party, pal. <laughs> that's, that's just how it is. There's a great article on lourockwell.com. This was published over the weekend. When resistance becomes duty. Now, I want to make something really clear before I share this with you. I'm not telling you that you better be part of the resistance. That's something that's going to have to come from your heart. It can't just be, you know, me blowing the trumpet here and saying, everybody, let's assemble and go be civilly disobedient. But I'm very confident there are people within the sound of my voice who have had that that spark of recognition in their lives and in their heart that says, hey, you need to stand up. You, you can see that this isn't right. Those are the people I'm speaking to. So if, if this is making you too uncomfortable, you have my permission to uh, you know, utterly reject whatever I'm saying. I, I don't want to force this on you, and I don't want to browbeat you into submission. But for those who feel that pull, that calling, if you will, that uh, you need to stand up. You need to be true. You need to be a source of light and example in a world where people's courage and their hearts are failing them. Some cases, literally, you know, myocarditis and stuff. Anyway, here's what Milos Matusek has to say about when resistance becomes duty. He says, Machiavelli recommended that the strategic sovereign was to commit atrocities right at the beginning of his rule. But democracies know an even better time. Chancellor Merkel who's about to resign from office soon, may commit the potentially greatest cruelty of her term in a kind of managerial capacity in the zombie phase of her rule. She's just announced that life for the unvaccinated is about to become even more unpleasant very soon. Now, what does that even mean at this point? Curfews, and lockdowns for the unvaccinated, the marking of unvaccinated people? Whatever it is. It's likely to be the completion of the quasi-ghettoization of within the vaccination apartheid state. Now, in Orwell's 1984, anything but work was forbidden. 
the 2G rule for the workplace or the de facto vaccine mandate implied by the 3G rule due to a daily required tests at one's own expense moves us ever so closer to Orwell's vision of the world. Now, he says desperation is at the root of the imminent state atrocity. So this is something to keep in mind. These governments that are locking down, these governments that are doubling down on the idea that well, what the mask mandates and all the travel restrictions and the societal lockdowns, they didn't work before. But if we just do them harder, they've got to work this time. They can't risk being seen as wrong. And you can kind of understand that, right? It's if if the citizen, the citizenry rather, sees us as as having been wrong or having utterly failed, why they might lose confidence in us. You think? And they really can't stand to lose that confidence. So again, going back to uh, Milos Matsushek's article, he says, we are at the height of madness regarding anti-pandemic policies. So these, these tactics that are being used, they are not coming from a position of strength and confidence that, yes, we know what we're doing, and we just have to calmly, you know, do this, and we're going to get through it. This is desperation. He says, the narrative of the worst pandemic in 100 years, for which the unvaccinated are now being blamed, is falling to pieces bit by bit. And a collective act of cruelty inflicted upon a minority and tolerated by the silent majority appears to be the final linchpin holding together a flimsy narrative consisting of a jumble of data, propaganda, and fear-mongering. From the standpoint of the political class, this is all too understandable, as everything remotely associated with logic is currently exploding in its face. And he gives a brief summary that uh, should establish this pretty well. For instance, the number of cases and ICU admission rates are higher today than they were a year ago. Now, do you remember a year ago the vaccination rate was zero? Today it is over 70%, or is it 80%? See, we can't even establish that beyond doubt. And it's finally dawning on even the last one of us. Either the vaccinations aren't working, or the population is being vaccinated into the next wave. Looking at the data from other countries, such as Israel, the latter was foreseeable months ago, as the number of cases went through the roof following mass vaccinations in these countries. The so-called pandemic of the unvaccinated is the latest fairy tale emanating from Spahn's lie factory and has been scientifically refuted. It's nothing but government propaganda of the shabbiest kind and has destroyed the last shred of credibility of a political class that's almost entirely detached from reality. The blatant adoption of the Soviet communication strategy under Stalin is nothing short of unbelievable. Back then, calamities such as supply shortages were equally ascribed to saboteurs and never to the poor planning of a political caste ideologically hovering above all material things. Here's another example. How exaggerated the panic-inducing numbers are and have been has recently been shown by the magazine Multipolar, which sifted through the billing data of health insurance companies. Now, accordingly, only around half the patients officially treated for corona were in the hospital primarily due to corona. But that's not all. The billing data also reveals further controversial findings. Compared to 2019, the number of cases requiring intensive care that are not linked to acute respiratory diseases, especially strokes, cancer, and heart attacks, increased significantly after the first lockdown. This points to the consequences of postponed treatments and delayed checkups resulting from the first lockdown. 
Also, the brazen manner in which Pfizer falsified COVID vaccine trial data has just been leaked to the prestigious British medical journal by a whistleblower. Whoops. Apparently, the company couldn't even ensure the proper storing temperature of vaccines used during the trial. Now, there's no other way to put it. The pharmaceutical industry has taken the population hostage and turned everyone into guinea pigs, at least of sorts, (laughs) aided by politics and media. But what kind of criticism can be expected from a media industry which is entirely under the spell of Big Pharma anyway? Are you starting to get the picture? We'll come back to this article in just a few moments. There is a link to it in my show notes. Just go to thebrianheidshow.com and there you can revel in wrong think to your heart's content. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I am sharing an article here from Milos Matuszek. I'm probably butchering this guy's name, but what a great article about when resistance becomes duty. I'm sure most of us did not ever aspire to become, you know, uh, people who engage in civil disobedience. I don't think any of us ever aspired to become activists of any sort. But somewhere along the course of life, as you become aware of what matters and you become aware of a a certain sense of duty that you have when you have uh, when you've reached the truth or you've at least committed to the truth. This is where we find ourselves standing today. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. And I don't uh, I don't blame people for, you know, just wanting, I just want to find a quiet place to sit down and just, I don't want to be a part of this. I get it. But we don't just have ourselves to think about in this case, do we? I'm thinking about the world that my kids and my grandkids are going to inherit. And, uh, you know, I, I would gladly have taken the hit for them. But unfortunately, you know, <laughs> it's... It, it looks like they're going to have their share of heavy lifting to do. So I want to prepare them as best I can. And I'm speaking to those people who likewise recognize that the stakes are very real here. In fact, if, if I can do this without losing too many people, the stakes here are not just, you know, of, of a temporal nature. It's not just a matter of, well, you know, we just got to get things right politically and vote in the right people. We'll have this made. I think there's eternal significance to this in that I think that what we are seeing is part of a larger eternal war between light and dark. And at the, at the center of that war is the question, will man be free? Now, I won't go into any more detail than that, but for some people that, uh, that should give us some perspective. The names and faces change, right? But throughout human history, the dynamic has always been the same, and it always seems to come back to that question. Should you be able to choose, must you be forced, lest somebody make a mistake? Now, in this article, we've had several different uh, examples of how the pandemic narrative has fallen apart. Here's another one. So far, the pandemic narrative has fed on the slavish obedience of a core of pro-government vax influencers. And the fact that uh, this circle the wagons mentality is now falling apart can actually be considered as the worst case scenario for the government and probably is the reason for the accelerated tightening of measures. 
the brutal public crackdown and quasi-execution of footballer and vaccine hesitator Joshua Kimmich was supposed to be a shot across the bow aimed at other prominent critics to deter them from questioning the narrative. Now, Kimmich is one of the initiators of the We Kick Corona campaign and was even mentioned in the panic paper of the Federal Ministry of the Interior. I believe this is talking about Germany here. The shot backfired totally. Even Richard David Precht, a no-TV philosopher and best-selling author, came to Kimmich's aid and condemned the ongoing witch hunt, referring to the mRNA vaccines as genetic engineering. In a podcast with Marcus Lanz, Justice Kimmich, he pointed to the lack of long-term studies and spoke out against vaccinating children with COVID vaccines. Now, this U-turn is surprising. In his book, Uber de Flicht, On Duty, Precht underlined the importance of the citizen's duty to obey the welfare state, hereby offending many people himself. But now he, too, is being reprimanded in an insulting manner, even torn apart by the media for his failing loyalty towards the government. The journalist Norbert Haring speaks of an unprecedented reckoning instigated by the Spiegel. It's the same old game with the same monotonous vocabulary. Anyone who refuses to toe the line is defamed. Even though it's barely visible to the outside world, it's been rumbling in the media for a long time. The uh, SWR employee, Ole Sambrax, who published a statement containing all of his skeptical questions in the magazine Multipolar, I can't go on like this, was the name of his article, has since been fired. The code of omerta in the media cannot be sustained for long. By now, everyone knows that they have endorsed a machine of systemic disinformation at the expense of the citizen. All media producers and journalists who want to maintain a last shred of credibility will have to draw the appropriate consequences. So let's talk about how resistance becomes duty. When injustice becomes law, resistance becomes duty, is a quote allegedly attributed to Bertold Brecht. Now, most likely the pandemic will only end as soon as the fear of a totalitarian public as as the fear as soon as the fear of a totalitarian public health dictatorship, which is the long standing subliminal agenda becoming increasingly clearer, becomes uh, outweighs rather the fear of the virus or personal disadvantages. Okay, this is where I am today. I am much more concerned with the medical totalitarianism that I see taking hold than I am with a virus which while deadly to some, mercifully does not kill the vast majority of people who contract it. I think that there's there's no, uh, I don't think there's any shame in, in, in seeing that. But some people would say, well, that's just, you know, lunacy. The author here says resistance against injustice, including legal injustice, doesn't require a special permit. He says, as soon as the state begins to act in a tyrannical manner, the bond of fundamental democratic loyalty is broken. In a highly recommendable rant, the Romanian European Union parliamentarian Christian Terras claimed that tyranny is easy to recognize, alluding to the heavily redacted contracts between the EU Commission and the vaccine manufacturers. Now, if the vaccine, or the government rather, he says, knows everything about you, it's tyranny. But if you know everything about the government, that's democracy. So there may be all, but there may be a lot more of us, he's saying, than, than we may assume, people who are waking up to this. Also, the state is not superior to the individual. It is made up from the sum of individuals. As soon as the state attempts to break the individual in order to preserve itself as a whole, it betrays the initial idea of the state. 
it breaches the social contract and betrays its only contractual partner, the citizen. So with the obedient nature of Germans in mind, our constitutional fathers created a legal norm for this kind of essential resistance, which is to be found in paragraph 4 of Article 20 of the Federal Constitution. Again, he's talking Germany, however, with no respective case law existing as of yet. So isn't it high time to bring this norm to life? And Milos Machucek says, look, with what right does the state expect to impose taxes on its citizens who've been harassed, lied to, and scammed with experimental vaccines? With what right do public service broadcasters expect to collect compulsory fees in exchange for the disinformation they're circulating? Isn't it time to finally explore the limits of the legal and extra-legal emergency laws placed at the disposal of citizens to defend themselves against the state? What else needs to happen? He says intelligent resistance begins with ceasing to go along with any of this and making it clearly visible and documenting it. He references a couple of campaigns. I, I would try to pronounce them, but uh, this is these are like 25-cent German words. Uh, they are just the tip of an iceberg of resistance with which politics is about to collide. The numerous examples of people standing up for their beliefs in everyday life are even more important. Everyone can set an example within the realms of their possibilities, whether it's merely a banner hanging from the balcony or a candle in the window. In his essay on civil disobedience, Henry David Thoreau illustrated what it is all about. The machine can only be stopped when a large amount of individuals generates enough friction and stops condoning injustice, which it recognizes as such and despises fundamentally. A system of values manifests itself by demanding a price and not being available for free. A change of the current system is impossible without the individual taking risks, making a sacrifice, or accepting noticeable disadvantages. But he says the magic of resistance begins to take effect when resistance becomes visible and like-minded people recognize each other. And he says some of us have taken the first step on this path. Join us. Now, don't fall into the trap of thinking, well, you know, he's talking about Germany and everything's much different there. This is something that's playing out in virtually every developed nation around the world right now. And it's just a matter of time before officials here in the U.S. start to really crank down to, again, assert that control. You know, I mean, think about what Dr. Fauci was saying in that first segment. I am the science. If you question me, you are questioning sciences. People are dying. This is a life and death matter. Of course, when it's a life and death matter... Why, government can justify just about any response. How far would they go? I don't think we want to know. But I do agree with Milos Matuchek, who says, you know, if, if you're not, if, if whatever system of values you are a part of isn't demanding a price, it's probably not a very worthwhile system. You've got to be willing to take individual risks. You've got to be willing to suffer inconvenience or make a sacrifice. And frankly, there's a lot of people that have walked away from their jobs rather than knuckle under to what is being demanded of them. I kind of like the idea of the candle in the window, too. saw a very powerful picture from 1932 Germany of a menorah in the window right across the street from Nazi Party headquarters. That took guts. We need to have guts as well. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, I'd like to encourage you to please visit my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Show a little bit of love for my sponsors. Check out the different articles that are linked there. You'll even find resources for wrong thinkers where if you want to just bypass the middleman and just uh, get these updates sent to your email inbox, this is a good way to do it. I'll give you some, some great information sources. What you do with that information, that's up to you. I'm not telling you you have to believe it. If you click on this, you're agreeing that you're going to believe me no matter what I say. There is an article there that I think would be well worth your time. This is from the Brownstone Institute. And where right now we have so many of the world's leaders mashing down on the fear button just as hard as they can. I think that uh, this may be one of the best articles that you read. But I'm going to tell you right now, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty lengthy article. You know, I have some articles that'll list, hey, this article should take about five minutes to read. This one takes about 27 minutes. And I assume that's if you're a pretty quick reader. But the idea is that our job, you and me, as sources of truth and light, is to speak the truth with love for the sake of those people who are still reachable. And Paris Williams, in writing about uh, this, this uh, overwhelming topic of how do we do that, describes how love rather than fear, is what is going to get us through this crisis. Very highly recommended article, lots of great information, so that when you do try to speak the truth, you have, you know, some factual data to share with those who are seeking the truth. But again, if, if we're not doing what we're doing out of a sense of love and with patience and with long-suffering, if, if we're doing it out of a sense of ridicule and superiority to you stupid sheep, we're doing it wrong. This, this ain't about, you know, look how much better, look how much smarter I am than you. Biff, Tad, look at these rubes. Look at what they believe. <laughs> Everybody at the country club would laugh. If we're going to lead out, we got to lead out the right way. That's going to require a little bit of humility. Okay, a lot of humility. So I want to shift gears here. There's, there's another article that, uh, that I found that I thought was really interesting, considering how many people have, have been feeling the pressure from work about, you know, you get the vaccine or you are fired. And as sad as it is to see those workers being pushed into unemployment for their refusal to bow to the demands of the political class, we need to remember that, you know, it's not a matter of Americans hating work so much as they hate the workplace for what it's becoming. This is from Austin Stone, published on the American Institute for Economic Research. He says, news outlets are calling it a great resignation. Millions of able-bodied Americans refusing to work. This phenomenon, so alien to America's ethos as a leader in production and innovation, has authorities scratching their heads and desperately seeking answers. Now, our nation was founded with an entrepreneurial mentality. The earliest colonists and later pioneers built beachheads from nothing in New England and tamed the Western wilds. Both devout Puritan Calvinists and secular types, exemplified by Benjamin Franklin, prized values like punctuality and industriousness, either as articles of faith or good sense. America itself was a startup whose value was its human capital and sweat, and sometimes blood, equity. 
Over the centuries, Americans have emphasized work culture and made it busier and more productive than any other nation, according to a multi-level analysis released in 2020, just before the pandemic. Indeed, our European friends think we work too hard. But most Americans have historically expressed satisfaction with their work conditions, their hours, their workload. That's according to Gallup polling. That is, until now. Labor experts are debating the cause of the great resignation brewing in America's workforce because it's an extraordinary phenomenon in economic terms. There are plenty of jobs. In fact, employers are desperate. But millions of Americans have stopped showing up. Specialists have attempted to diagnose this malady before it metastasizes into an irreversible economic crisis. Free market capitalists point to the pandemic unemployment expansions and stimulus payments that incentivized workers to either quit or get themselves fired and offered Americans who live month to month more financial flexibility to work less. And he says they're correct, despite best intentions, when people can make more from unemployment than a job, we're inviting economic underperformance. But the stimulus and federal employment bonus have now ended, and the Great Resignation is accelerating. Left-leaning pundits have tried to call the Great Resignation a symptom symptom of labor militancy, pointing to the strikes and walkouts that have repeatedly cropped up in several industries. However, many of these rowdy rebellions have been grassroots resistance to vaccine mandates and lingering COVID restrictions. Union leaders have been the tip of the spear for enforcing these directives, even penalizing and coercing their own members who appeal to them for help. So the Great Resignation is not just a story of economic policy incentives or Marxist analysis or even exasperation with rude and difficult customers. It's not a matter of attitude adjustment, as if Americans were adopting the Chinese practice of Tang Ping, lying down, the new trend of young people giving up trying to achieve or accomplish anything. Quietest philosophy, at least when it comes to professional occupation, is foreign to the American culture of liberty and self-determination. Solving the mystery of the great resignation phenomenon is not difficult. We must pay attention to who is resigning, what kind of workers, and then put ourselves in their shoes. The laptop class, John Tierney's term for college-educated workers whose workday is largely computerized, is not resigning. Graphic designers, software developers, and an assorted cohort of spreadsheet surfers and keyboard warriors have not been the primary driver of unemployment during or after the pandemic. Most companies and employees adapted to remote work, a development that was long overdue given the technology available. Now, the only office employers struggling to fill cubicles are those who still think cubicles are the future. The workers resigning are those most brutally impacted by policy over the last year and a half. They wear uniforms, or at least boots, and most of their customers are strangers. Police officers, airline pilots, healthcare workers, builders, repairmen. We used to call them frontline heroes and essential employees. Now we oppress them with litanies of COVID mandates in their workplace. And don't forget about the workers in retail and restaurants who've always lived just above the poverty line. At a time of unprecedented economic instability, they don't see much difference between their paltry wage and welfare, with poverty even being preferable to an exploitative or abusive workplace. So the Great Resignation is a blue-collar movement. Data from the Department of Labor and privately conducted surveys bear this out. In short, the backbone of America, the ones who keep the country up and running, are walking off the job, and we all know why. 
We've all walked into a restaurant or grocery store where masks are not required for customers, but corporate office wants all employees to wear them. We've all had a friend or relative whose job has been threatened by public or private sector vaccine mandates. We watched the disunity over COVID restrictions split churches and tear school districts apart, so why should we be surprised if it involves or demotivates workers? Working in these conditions comes at a price, and for blue-collar jobs especially, that price is not justified by the salary. Workers in these jobs value security, job security that is, schedule regularity, and constancy of tasks. A job to be proud of, but not to prioritize over values, free time, or personal dignity. So as a country, we're shackling our own economy by forcing these workers to make the choice between their livelihood and their dignity or autonomy. We need blue-collar workers. Their ingenuity, energy, and constancy are what built this country. And despite our current crisis, can now build it back. Many progressive policies have already targeted the industries that are crucial to the national infrastructure, like manufacturing or oil and gas. More politically driven regulations might be the straw that breaks the economy's back. Now, Austin Stone says, unfortunately, our national disunity over COVID and a host of other issues won't be going away anytime soon. It's already escalated into a conflict with inevitable winners and losers. We can't reform government, public sector unions, schools, or corporations overnight. But we can build alternative institutions and parallel economies that create opportunities for hardworking Americans who won't be pushed around. We can return to an economy where businesses focus on business, not irrelevant agendas using corporations as a vehicle for politics. He says the American entrepreneur of the future must rally the workers being squeezed by these coercive policies. Their productivity and ingenuity, currently subdued by short-sighted agendas, may be America's greatest untapped resource. You know what? I'm confident that there are entrepreneurs out there who recognize this and, as we speak, are in the process of creating whatever is going to come next. I sincerely hope that you're one of those entrepreneurs, or at least one of those people who's willing to step up and support those entrepreneurs. You know, innovation is a good thing. Sometimes it's, you know, necessary. This is one of those times. So we don't tend to innovate when things are just going swimmingly, do we? It's usually when things get tough. Well, things are tough. So let's see what kind of a positive turn we can can make out of this. This is The Brian Hyde Show.